Welcome to What Would Jesus Tech, a podcast between two friends, a Bible student, me, and uh, Techie, that's Joel Jacob, and we try to work out how Jesus would use tech if he lived today. We all know social media, but few of us realize just how many ways it is affecting our lives, from friendships to our pride, from conspiracy theories to anxieties, from our view of sex to our view of God. Uh, and I'm so glad Chris Martin has written uh, The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead. Um, and we're very glad to have him here today to discuss it. Thanks, Chris, for uh, joining us on WWJT. Sure, sure. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no. Um, just to give people some background, Chris Martin is the content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He studies internet culture and the effects of social media. And in his own words, he does this for fun. Um, he published a book uh, in February 22 um, called Terms of Service, which is behind me. Um, and he also has a, a weekly tech newsletter that I would encourage everybody to subscribe to. It's same title, Terms of Service. Uh, really helpful. And just a few more questions to help people get to know you, Chris. Um, you also have a newsletter called The Funnies. What inspired you to get that started? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I don't get a lot of questions about the funnies, despite the fact that it's actually more popular than my more substantive <laughs> newsletter, Terms of Service, which is both happy and sad all at the same time. Um, <clears throat> the funny, so how the funnies was born um, was so I run this newsletter, Terms of Service, and every Thursday is like a roundup of like things I've been reading and um, just kind of a, a curation of various things. And at some point in the process of that Thursday, newsletter i started putting something i call the funny part i think it was pretty early on it was a few years ago now and um it was just the uh you know a funny tweet i found or meme or sometimes youtube clip or whatever um, just to break it up and make it not so serious and so what i found in looking at some data on the newsletter was that the regularly the most clicked piece of content in the weekly thursday newsletter was the funny part um and i was like oh that's funny and makes sense kind of um what if i just made a newsletter that was all the, of this stuff like it was just a newsletter full of funny parts i was like i'm looking at this stuff all day every day and texting it to my friends anyway i might as well make a text or make a newsletter of it and invite more people so for like the first year not the year probably six months it was like 20 friends and family who were on it and then slowly but surely more people started picking it up and now gosh i think we add 50 or 100 people every week and I like I don't talk about it like I don't wow. I don't promote yeah. it or anything but it's just like people I think forward it along and then they're they subscribe and stuff so it's at like 3,000 people I think um which is just crazy because I've literally it's just like something it's 100% organic like nothing I've done really um but it's really fun and um it uh yeah it's just a blast I, lo I love it and so I recommend the funnies if you get nothing else out of this interview subscribe <laughs> to the funnies it's a good time there you go have a good laugh. Last uh, background question: Your yeah. interest in bird watching. How, uh, yeah. What's your favorite bird to look at? Well, real. I've never seen a bald eagle in real life, and I would love to see one of those. Um, and we reportedly have some around where I live. I live close to a river, and my understanding is from friends who live close to the river is that some will often nest in the trees above the river because they like to catch fish down there. Um, so I, I, it's like, I would love to see a bald eagle, but I've never seen one. And it's like not too far from my house. They probably live. But um, I, you know, 
I really only watch around my house. I'm I'm like the most casual bird watcher to ever call himself a bird watcher. I think is how I've said it. Um, <laughs> I just have a lot of feeders around the house. I have some ha- bird houses. I have a window feeder on my office window right here that I have to occasionally shoo squirrels off of. Um, my favorite man. Um, I mean, I love a good woodpecker because I love that you. I mean, I hear them before I see them, and it's like where where are they? Um, so that's fun. Uh, and I think cardinals are like my favorite just to see though. They're just so pretty, like the really bright red ones and blue jays. Um, those cardinals and blue jays are both really pretty. And the blue jays, I don't know if this is typical. I, I don't, again, I'm, I don't know enough about birds, but the blue jays around my house are bullies. And I, I think they might have that reputation generally. Yeah, I think they do. Uh, but man, they, they get feisty with the other birds. I'll tell you what. And their black markings around their faces are, are just so distinct. And so those are the ones I love to see. I get doves a lot, a lot of grackles. They're like the purple black bird kind of thing. And they, they like flock to my back bird, my main back bird feeder and will scoop seed onto the ground. And then like two or three will scoop seed with their beaks onto the ground. And then there'll be like 15 on the ground, just eating it off. I'm like, I got to stop wasting bird seed. The grackles just scoop it onto the ground and eat it all up. But anyway, so I think I like Cardinals are pretty blue Jays are pretty. We don't get anything super exotic where I'm at. So fair enough. Cool. And, and wolves, do you have an interest in wolves? Where did the title of the book come from? There are two wolves inside of you. No, um, the, uh, the, the title, frankly, um, I wish I had a profound story for it. I was writing the proposal. Um, terms had not even come out yet. Um, and I knew that I wanted to write a second book that was more specific for leaders. And that was confirmed that after terms came out, the primary feedback I got from a lot of readers was, Hey, this book, this book terms is really helpful, but can you write something that's more specific for leaders? And I said, actually, I'm already working on that. Um, and when I was writing the proposal, um, I kept trying to think of like an image or a metaphor to use. I often think in images and metaphors, sometimes it makes it into my writing, but yeah, sometimes you don't want to do that too much or you can lose people. Um, I hear mixing metaphors is bad. And so I was like, yeah, I just think of like, pastors are shepherds and what do shepherds do they lead sheep and they're trying to protect sheep from wolves and then the natural progression was i don't think shepherds pastors know that their sheep are carrying wolves around in their pockets um that was kind of the thought process um and so i think i only use the image like once the metaphor like once and it's not like it's a woven through theme or anything um but i just kind of like you know it was one of those things where i need to title this proposal something and so I just titled the word doc, the wolf in their pockets or some form of that. Um, and then uh, when we sent it to the publisher, which happens to be my employer, but my agent and I actually sent it to a bunch of different publishers. Um, eventually, the publisher decided, hey, we actually think this is a good title. You always want to be careful when you're titling a book because you don't want to be too cute. But sometimes being cute and clever can be helpful if you have mm. a good subtitle. Um and so I didn't think the titling team here at Moody Publishers would take it because they would think it's too cute, but they ended up really liking it. Um, and so they they went with it and said, are you cool if we just keep this? And I said, yeah, sure. Let's go for it. So, Yeah, cool. I mean, the subtitle there, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead. Um, yeah, you know, that tells you is, what you need to know. Yeah. And 13 is a pretty big number. I can imagine it being really difficult to 
to write a book around so many topics, you know, addressing it biblically, then also offering practical guidance, and then for so many different types of Christian leaders, how did you approach, you know, the challenge of writing a book of that nature? Um, with a lot of help. So um, I had an idea of a handful of topics that would need to be addressed in in a book like this. Um, I lead in the student ministry at my church. I've been leading in student ministry since I was a senior in high school. So every church I was at in college and since I'm 32. So um, every church I was at in college and since then, I've found a way to plug into the student ministry, usually just as a lay leader, but but uh, at least once as like an on-staff member, like a volunteer unpaid, but st- on, on the staff as like the main guy. And so I kind of know what this is like, you know, as a foot soldier doing this and having conversations with parents and hanging out with teenagers, I know what a lot of the key issues are. And this is not just a youth ministry book, but obviously teenagers are power users of social media. So you see a lot of the issues there. Um, And so I knew of a good handful of uh, topics that should be covered, but I didn't want to only rely on my lived experience. I wanted to talk to a lot of people. And so I sent a Google form out to two or three dozen people who are pastors, church leaders, parents, even I think like a couple of people who are like teachers in Christian schools. Basically, I wanted people who could be called Christian leaders, either formally or informally, who are basically in charge of discipling someone else. And and I know of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget what all was in the questionnaire, the little form, but it was five or six questions like, what do you, and one of them was, um, what like here's here's an idea of a, a few topics that I want to cover. Is there anything missing? And so I got some input from that. And then also, if there's one topic you you would say I must cover in this book, what is the one topic you think I should cover and why? Um, and so I got a ton of. And so I was already kind of working because I knew some like I knew anxiety was going to be in there, and I knew certain topics were going to be. So I'd already started working on it, but I wanted to get some feedback as I was still early in the process. And so I got this feedback, and that really helped solidify the the TOC, the table of contents. Um, and it it made sure like, okay, yeah, this does like for a while. So for instance, there's actually some metadata out there on the internet where um, it's the wolf in their pockets twelve ways. Um, and the reason is, is it was it was 13 at the beginning, and then we reduced it to 12 because we combined, A, we had a word count problem, like I was way over when I first submitted, um, awesome. and B, yeah, uh, B, there was some thought maybe we could combine the discernment chapter and the conspiracy theories chapter, which logically makes sense because conspiracy theories are like a subset of discernment, mm-hmm. um, but... I was campaigning for them to stay set. I was like, even if I have to dramatically reduce the word count throughout every chapter, I think these merit their own chapters um, mm-hmm. because conspiracy theories, to a T, 100% of those form respond responders all said that conspiracy theories was the thing I must talk about. Um, so that was kind of a shock to me. I mean, I knew that was one that I was like, I know I need to put this in the book. I did not expect everyone to say that, that was the thing you need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I was like, that really, I really think that needs its own chapter. Like, I think for a lot of folks, they're going to maybe go straight to that chapter. And so I kind of campaigned for it. And one of the editors campaigned for keeping it at 13. So we went from 13 to 12 and then back to 13. Um, So anyway, yeah, that's, that's what a lot of it was, especially in building out the TOC and what topics. And then in terms of writing, um, it's really helpful for me. And I I think it's helpful for the reader. I don't know. um, To kind of come up with a formula for every chapter. 
mm-hmm. and write every chapter to that formula at least loosely. So um, not including like any introductions and stuff. Um, so except for the first chapter, which doesn't, uh, it's funny, the first chapter does not adapt, is not the uh, in the formula that I use for every other chapter, because I wrote that chapter for the proposal before I came up with the formula that I was going to use throughout the book. But every other chapter, the 12 other topics, it's like intro stating the problem. Um, here's what scripture has to say about that. Um, well, intro stating the problem. Here's how social media impacts this topic. And our mm-hmm. understanding of this topic. Here's what scripture has to say about that. And then here's what we practically do. Um, every chapter follows the same formula. I think that serves readers in some respect because um, it gives a rhythm. And if they find yeah. like they want to skip certain parts, that it's easy to skip around. It's easy. I think I think that can be really helpful. Um, and also it's really helpful for me as a writer because I sit down and I don't have to think, how am I gonna how am I going to write this chapter? It's like, I already have the skeleton set up for every chapter. So it takes very minimal thought. It takes a lot of work on the front end to figure out how do I want to structure this? Um, But then it takes very minimal planning and like strategizing as you're writing. Like if I, um, you know, I, I wrote a lot during the week from like five to seven in the morning before I started working. Um, And then similar time on the weekends before my wife and daughter would wake up. And it's like, if I sit down for two hours and I need to really crank out content, I need to not be planning what these chapters are going to be like. I need to be writing words down. And so a sort of secret of efficiency was like, just build, build this, the skeleton out and then add the, the meat and everything else to it as you go. And that way um, it can be more efficient that way. And you can kind of go from there. Yeah. I mean, even for me, it was pretty valuable to have it in that structure. And I think it lends well to like a field manual type book where you're like, Hey, I want to, maybe I read through it at some point and now I need to recall back to it. Okay. I know exactly how to like go into this chapter, this section and reference something. So I think it's it's certainly it certainly doesn't work for every genre. And if you're going to do something that's more creative or artful, like, yeah, you don't want to follow the same formula every time, probably. But for something like this, it's just really, it really is meant to be a tool or a field guide, as you describe. Um, I want it. I want the structure of it to be as um, uncumbersome as possible. Like I want it to be as simple and straightforward and, and, and kind of known. Um, and so I think some readers will pick that up. In fact, I've heard from a couple of people already that they kind of picked that up and, and appreciate it. I think most people may not even recognize it, but. Yeah. One of the chapters that stuck out to me was on on friendship. I I literally took a screenshot. I was reading it on my phone, sent it to a WhatsApp group that I'm part of, and I'm like, "This is what I want our friendship to to look like, model." Um, and there's kind of been a lot of talk about loneliness and, and that sort of thing. And and some people argue, "Hey, we should use social media more to connect people. We should kind of leverage increased relational contact." Um, how do you think about you know, the social media world and how it's impacting friendships? You know, this is a hard answer for me, a hard question for me, because I I feel so split on it. Um, and I, I kind of figure, I think, where I've landed. And it's not even, for me, it's not even so much like, here's my opinion so much as this is how it has to be for me. I don't know. And if other people can approach friendship and social media in other ways, God bless them. But I don't think I could. It's kind of like, I think a lot, mm-hmm. this is a sort of personal situation and and how you build friendships and how you communicate. It, in short, how I would summarize it is, 
I think social media needs to supplement incarnational friendships. And it just like friendships is just so, so vague. It's so, it can mean so many things. Like there are different levels of friendship and acquaintances. And it's like, you know, some people just like call people friends who they only talk to online and they, you know, it's not somebody they'd call up if they needed something, you know, is that a friend or is that just somebody, you know? And, and so like, you know, there's some, there's some language and how you use words that can kind of muddy this conversation. But when I think of a friend, I think of like, hey, if I need to move, I need their help, right? Um, and and yeah, that doesn't mean you can't have friends who are elsewhere, but it needs to be somebody I have some level of comfort with beyond just like we share interests and happen to follow each other on Twitter. Um, and so there are a lot of people who I would consider like good acquaintances. Um, I can think of them right now, but I don't necessarily consider them friends. Like we've never connected on a deeper level between some maybe shared interest or I, I don't know. I, I have a very high bar for friendship maybe. And so I think that's part of it is like, I think of social media should supplement real life friendship and should be seen as a good way to like make and maintain acquaintances abroad. Um, and, and so like, I think of one of my friends His I'll, I'll just name him cause he won't care. His name is Brandon Smith. He's a professor at Cedarville university um, a very brilliant theologian and and writes books on theology himself, did his PhD under Michael Bird in Australia. Um, he and I met on social media a decade ago, um, and he was in living in Texas. I had just moved to Nashville, and we were just kind of Twitter friends. That's what I we call I mean, that's you know, you know what I'm talking about if you hear that. Like we were just we would tweet at each other, we'd DM each other, we eventually got each other's phone numbers and would text occasionally. We had never hung out. I'm not going to tell him, hey, man, my wife and I are having a really hard week. You know, that's just not, you know, we would yep. connect about things we had interest in, but we're not going to have like some heart to heart conversation. I would not have called him a friend at that point. I would have been like, oh, yeah, Brandon and I, we've we've connected online, you know, that kind of thing. Um, then he was offered a job at Lifeway. He knew I was at Lifeway here in Nashville. And he was like, hey, I'd love to talk to you about what it's like living in Nashville with no family around because that my wife and I are from Indiana. We're here with no family. He was like, you know, we've never lived away from our family. Would love to talk about that. So that, that was like, a, oh, we're having a deeper level mm -hmm. conversation here. But they they came to Nashville for his interview. We met for coffee. His wife, you know, he and his wife, me and my wife. There was like, okay, we're feels like we're kind of friends now. We, we're having, you know, and then they moved here and became our best friends. Like, like we we will be lifelong friends because of how close we grew for four years here together eventually moved basically a mile from each other went to the same church we're in the same small group we became lifelong friends in that period right now he moved to ohio middle of nowhere to christian college you know five hours away kind of close to where like i grew up like not super far from where i grew up and we're still friends and we keep up on social media, mostly through texting and stuff, but we'll engage with each other on social media. And so I see that as almost like supplementary to my relationship with him. Um, that's just one example. So so I think that social media can be useful for friends to maintain connection with each other. And I think it can be useful to connect with people around interests and around like, like I love video games. And so I love talking with people, strangers on the internet who I only know because of our shared love for a particular video game. And I think that's totally fine. But like, I'm not going to call those people friends and because I think I do, maybe I have a higher bar than most for how I use that word. Um, and so, yeah, uh, long story short, I think social media can support friendships. I would be nervous about like um, maintaining a friendship solely on social media 
uh, or having a suite of friends that are only on social media. Because I think what can start to happen, perhaps unintentionally, is you start to neglect sort of incarnational friendships for online friendships. And I think that's where it can get messy really quickly because it's just, it's not the same level of connection. You're ne- you're never going to be able to convince me that it's the same level of connection. I just can't, I can't be swayed if somebody, and, and people have tried. Um, I just can't be swayed that you can make the same level of connection because I, I need to know that you're going to come over if tragedy strikes my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, anyway. Joel, do not make your argument right now for the metaverse. Hold back. <laughs> Oh man! You like see me like almost jumping out of my seat here. It's not the same. It's not the John. Our joy will not be complete unless we see each other face to face. All right, Joel. Um, Okay, wait. wait. I'm not going to make the argument, but I I will say kind of like the interesting. One of the interesting things I took away is you know it's not just like um, social media. It's a social internet or you know the social construct. And like internet was one of the technologies that fueled this sort of next phase, right? And I'm always thinking of like, okay, like what Chris had mentioned is one of the things uh, that affected that depth of friendship was the presence. Um, And a lot of people who are pushing, you know, the next platform are going to talk about like, well, can we close that presence part of it? And, you know, we we won't have to dig into here, but I totally feel that, you know, my brother moved to New York recently, got married. And now there's distance and from seeing him all the time to seeing him uh, not much in the past two years, it's definitely uh, affected our friendship. Um, And we're using kind of social media and what we have now to stay in touch. Um, But there is a longing to kind of close that gap. Right. And, you know, if I had lots of money, sure. And time I'd be able to fly there all the time. Um, But in lieu of that, I'm going to be looking for some other thing to fill that gap. Yeah. And I think the point at which not to get into the metaverse discussion, so last year, right? Am I right? Um yeah, exactly. but like uh we're we we've moved on to generative AI. Um, but the uh I think where where I would begin to be intrigued truly by a sort of metaverse starting to um be competitive, if you will, with like incarn- incarnational friendship is when you when you get into like mass market haptics where it doesn't cost $800 to get a good system and you can actually feel the touch of another human being because Zuckerberg's crappy avatar is not going to replace hanging out in person. It's just not like, but if you can touch each other and like hug each other and shake hands and actually feel that that's when things start to get a whole lot more blurry for me. But like facsimile cartoon, nineteen ninety five Pixar a Pixar avatars is not gonna like. I'm so far from convinced, because yeah. Anyway, um, okay. I do want to come back on that later because there's yeah 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 yeah. But but when you start incorporating like touch into that, uh, and I think I think in my lifetime we're gonna see that. Like I I think this is coming, but um, I think touch really matters. And I think until you have that dimension, um, it it will fall short in my view. But I, I'm I may be wrong. Hmm. Yeah, going to another chapter. I mean, there's so many different directions we could go. Thinking about anxiety, you said, of course, I'm going to include anxiety in this book. There's even more and more research that comes out over time. I know you saw Jonathan Haidt's 
you know, argument that it's not just correlation, it's causation. Let's not talk about that. I loved your um, metaphor, you think in pictures of the backstage that you brought out. Um, can you can you talk about that? The idea that social media erases the backstage? Yeah. Um, and I can't take credit for inventing this. Um, I first saw it in Soshana Zuboff's uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And I think she's even citing somebody else. I forget who she's citing in that. Um, but the idea of a backstage, generally, it's not that deep, at least in, as I think of it, is um, socially, you're living, you live life on a stage. Um, and social media, um, using Derek Thompson's metaphor from Hitmakers, uh, talking about how students today, teenagers are always in the hallway. So if you, if any of us who were, in high school before social media was a huge deal or before the smartphone was a huge deal. Like the iPhone came out when I was a junior in high school. So even though I was on MySpace in freshman year, I wasn't carrying MySpace around in my pocket. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of social stage of the high school hallway or performing socially for my peers was able to be left at school or at my in my computer room at my house. I wasn't carrying it around with me all the time and and having to feel the need to always be socially performing. And so Derek Thompson makes a good case in Hitmakers that teenage anxiety today is about is is in large part due to uh the feel that the need to always be performing. Like they're always on that model runway of when we were in high school you're kind of socially performing walking from class to class and they simply can never escape that i mean it's always there it's always present and i think data continues to point that direction um that is related to a backstage so like if you imagine and this is again take this out of the youth room for a second like for everybody all of us are performing socially if we're creating content on social media that doesn't mean you're I'm not saying like everybody's like, please pay attention to me, but you are performing socially, like you're mm -hmm. communicating something, et cetera. And so if you are ever present and you feel like you have to be constantly posting and whatever else, there's this draw to always be on stage. And a lot of us, I fear, have not made room to be able to escape to a sort of backstage where we, where we don't have to socially perform and we don't have to... um show people what what we care about and what matters to us. And I think the backstage is sort of eroding for a lot of us. And so if you if you feel like the need to be constantly online, I think especially about like influencers. If I I don't have any plans for another book at this time for another social media book at this time, but if I did, I mean I'd love to write a book just like on influencer culture and like all the different ways to look at that diamond and all of the different things that we should think about, not even just from a Christian perspective, but just like generally. Um, because like, I think especially about people who are trying to be an author or trying to be a YouTube content creator or things like that, or like a podcast, yeah, right. Or the podcaster, if you're just, if you're creating content online, there's this need that you can never do enough and you could, you always need to be out on stage. Um, and I think a significant, uh, sort of reason for our increased anxiety, not only among teenagers, but among everyone is a lot of us feel like the backstage is evaporating and there, there are a few places we feel like we can just let our hair down metaphorically speaking and, and be 
whoever we need to be uh, and, and want to be in a given moment. And so there, some people say, well, yes, yeah, so everybody needs to feel like they feel the need to be polished online or, or like make everything look perfect. No, I mean, like, I think, I think some people are performing, you know, performative outrage and per, like, I think people perform in all kinds of different ways, not just that they have it all together eventually. And even there's been some trends this way on TikTok recently, like it's now becoming cool to have a messy room and like be messy and like, okay, now that's cool. It's like cool to not have it all together now. Okay. Um, so it's like, everybody's always performing. And and I think that's adding to a sort of corporate anxiety we have of like, what's, what's real. I think, I think what's at the foundation of a lot of this is we lose a grasp of like, what's real, who's being real and who's just doing something, uh, to get attention and, and where's that line and, and where, what's real and what's not. I, I think that's a big, a big reason. We kind of feel like we're on sand, if you will, in that, in that regard. Mm-hmm. And so enter the church. What is the church to do to provide backstage, you know, presence, so to speak? Like, I mean, some people are like, oh, just ask people to leave their phones off when they come into the church. But like be, beyond just setting up some sort of legalistic mechanism, what does it look like for the church to enable more backstage places? One of the things I was talking with a podcast the other day that like helps churches do social media well. Um, and I think that's important. I'm, I am not anti-social media at all or anti-social internet at all. Um, like I think it can be used for good. Um, but I think like I, if I were, you know, leading this kind of thing in a church, I would make sure that none of my like I would make sure that no one feels out with regard to participating in the body of the local church if they don't have an online presence. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, with COVID expedited so much of this, but like I've I've just seen troubling trends of churches putting more and more stuff on social or on the Internet generally that like if people, you know, if there are people in your church who don't have a social media presence or don't love getting on the internet and doing things a lot outside of total necessity that they may feel left out because you're, you're running that small group on a Facebook group or you're, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I always encourage churches cause I do a lot of consulting with churches on like content strategy online and that kind of thing. Um, to just always be, always make sure that you're whatever content creation and community building you're trying to do through social media or otherwise on the internet, feels truly supplemental to what you're doing incarnationally. I mean, it's similar to the friend discussion. Like, don't let anyone feel left out because they don't have a Facebook profile. Um, I just am real I'm really passionate about that. I think by all means churches should use the tools they have at their disposal to try to reach people, but also walk this fine line of like don't make people feel left out because they don't have a presence there. And that can be hard. Um and so that's something I would encourage. This is more in the I think the chapter on like fellowship and community. Um, but something that I'm really passionate about is churches doing what they can to encourage um, low stakes social environments. So a lot of churches who are especially more program heavy, you know, like, oh yeah, we have a men's breakfast. We have a women's retreat. We have X, Y. And I think all those things are great. I, I happily participate in them. Um, but I think like the more that a church can kind of create a cult, and I think my church does this very well, create a culture of community where people just naturally go have board game nights and go out on double dates with each other's spouses and like creating the more organic community culture rather than yep. feeling like you have to program it into people's lives. 
um, I think is huge. Um, yeah. Because frankly, I mean, a lot of people are going on social because they want to feel connection. Honestly, this is like if I have a lot of um, concerns, obviously, about our relationship with social media. But like one of the things that's most concerning to me is our like how we going. It goes back to the friend conversation a little bit, uh, but also the things that it's so wrapped up in all the all so many of these topics, almost all of them, that what's so appealing to connecting with other people through social media to us is that we want to feel loved, but we're afraid to feel known. And it's like what Keller talks about in the meaning of marriage, where he, he uses the same language. Um, we're meant to be fully known and truly loved, but a lot of us are don't like ourselves and we don't want people to totally know us. And connecting with people through social media allows us to use people for friendship um, and and connect with them in such a way that we feel affection and feel like we're loved without feeling like we need to show who we fully and truly are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, I was talking with somebody the other day who works in student ministry and they said, Hey, look, I, there are people in my, there's teens in my student ministry who are looking for mentors on the internet before they're coming to people in the church mm-hmm. and they're, and they're Christians. Yeah. And they're like, how, like, why, how, why are they doing this? And I'm like, I'll, I'll tell you exactly why, at least my theory, I don't know for sure. But I said, when they're looking for a mentor on the internet, they can just consume mentorship like and advice and like they can just absorb it. They don't feel like, like they're not being observed regularly. This person doesn't know who, where they go to school necessarily. They don't know. They can let, they can selectively let that online mentor in and only expose the parts of them the parts of themselves that they're comfortable exposing. Um, whereas if you have a mentor who goes to your church and knows your parents, you know, if you're a teenager, knows your parents, knows that, you know, who your coach is on the soccer team and knows X, Y, and Z, um, it feels a lot more invasive. You feel more known and you feel more vulnerable. And I think social media, when, when it goes sideways in, in regard to us trying to connect with people, it's not always like this, but when it goes sideways, which is more often than a lot of us like to admit, is we want to connect with people and feel the affection and and attachment but we're afraid of being vulnerable and known so so the the sort of um the screen if you will allows us to guard against being totally known and and feeling vulnerable and so i think to the degree that local churches can create social environments that makes people slowly over time open up to one another and build deep relationship that can begin to push back against the constant lure of the appeal of I can feel affection, I can feel love, and I don't have to expose myself to hurt at all. That is often comes with with social media. So no, no, well said. Um I I just wish more people would take initiative to show hospitality, have chess nights, video game nights, whatever it is, like those sorts of um, just being together and doing that kind of stuff is, is crucial. I was telling someone, cause they were, they were asking me, you know, Oh, is it bad to reach out to someone else? Um, if I can't offer them something, like, is it okay to just want to be with someone else so that they can benefit me? Cause shouldn't I, as a Christian, always be serving others and pleasing others. And I'm like, dude, like, 
just message people. Like Jesus went up to Peter and said, Hey, I'm making breakfast for you. You know, and it like Jesus did things that weren't like ministry a hundred percent of the time, right? Yeah. Um, I, I just want more of that kind of stuff. And so I really appreciated that chapter. Um, yeah. thinking about this social media and this tension, uh, because I I love not forcing your high school students to be on Facebook in order to hear about the events each week. Um, and yet our youth pastor at our church is asking me, and and this is I would call it a larger church by Canadian standards where like 800, 900 people or something would call themselves part of the church. Um, and so it's it's a larger youth ministry. And so he's like, should I lean more into posting stuff on socials? He doesn't want to encourage it, but it, there's something there. And and he's feeling this tension and I'm like, oh, I'm about to read a book, you know, <laughs> that's that that addresses it. But it's it's not like you would answer it directly to him and say yes or no. Um, so what are some of the things he should think through um, to evaluate how to post on social media or not? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is similar to what I said earlier about like, make sure just whatever you're doing on social for students in a student ministry is supplemental and it, and it doesn't feel like, because you're going to have plenty of kids probably, maybe not, I don't know, in the student ministry whose parents aren't letting them on social or whatever. Right. Um, and so you don't want you don't want them to feel left out. Um, and so I would consider that, like make sure whatever you're doing is um, not exclusive and doesn't make people feel like they're missing out. Um, that's important. Uh, secondly, so I used to give a lot of advice in this vein and it's very different than what I give today. I used to just tell like youth ministers to go all out, like, like create, uh, when I was first giving advice on this stuff, uh, Snapchat was pretty new. And I was like, um, get a, get a youth ministry, like Snapchat and just post stories. Like don't, don't message people just like post your stories and stuff like that. And like, by all means, like jump, jump head first into this, but the world has changed in the eight years 10 years that I've been in this space and I would not, I would tell churches and pastors to tread much more carefully today than I probably would have eight or 10 years ago. Um, just because we've seen so many horrible circumstances of ministry leaders in general, youth or otherwise misusing these things in, a, in abusive ways, or at least inappropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, um, I was asked a similar question to this uh, by a youth minister a couple months ago, and I said, I would make sure that you have a a defense for whatever platforms it is you're using and that you have clear like uh, content plans and that you only follow those content plans um, and that you are able to defend anything at any time from any parent who may express concern. I would never message students individually. Um, whether they message you or you initiate, um, not because it's not because it's wrong, but because it can so easily go wrong. Um, and part of this is being above reproach. Part of it's just wisdom in my mind. Like uh, I had a youth minister ask me, like, there's some guys in my youth group who play video games together. Like, can I set up a youth ministry discord? And I said, you can. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And not because I think it's wrong. I would love to be able to do that. Um, But if some kid posts something in the youth group discord that the other kids shouldn't be consuming or whatever, um, now you have to explain to parents why their kids were exposed to whatever that was in the youth ministry discord, (laughs) you know, Mm. Um, like 
And there, then the, because the parents are going to be like, why did you even have this? And you're gonna be like, uh, ooh, uh, good, good question. Unless you have a good reason, in which case God bless you and, and go for it. But this is why, like, um, if some kids, if some kids says something awful at the Wednesday night Bible study, you know, and, uh, or bring something on his phone and shows the kids at your Wednesday night Bible study, and the parent, the parent can't say, why were you having Wednesday night Bible study? You're like, well, we're having Wednesday night Bible study. I can't control what this kid yeah, brings yeah. in on his phone. But if you're having a Minecraft Discord server and a mom calls you up and is like, did you know what happened on your Minecraft Discord server? Why are you even doing this? It's a lot harder to justify the existence of your youth group's Minecraft Discord server than it is your youth group's Wednesday night Bible study, where the, maybe the same event happened to both places. And so um, I would just express serious caution. Um, because even if the youth pastor does everything right, it can still go sideways. Um, so that's what I would say. But I don't think it's bad. And I think it can be done well. And I think like communicate with parents. I think the biggest mistake I've seen youth pastors make over the over the years is not having regular communication with parents on these matters and just kind of doing often youth pastors are young men who don't always, you know, they're more interested in, getting close with the students and hanging out with them than they are with having clear communication with their parents. And so I think to the degree that you can say, Hey parents, I'm thinking of doing this. Is that okay with you? Does that make you yeah. uncomfortable? Like total transparency on that. Because then if, if you say, Hey, I want to start, you know, I want to start um, a youth ministry uh, Facebook group or, you know, none of your students are going to get in a youth ministry Facebook group. If I want to start a youth ministry, Instagram, account or whatever or discord server if you got kids who play video games yeah. or whatever else um and they're all like yeah this like I, I like what you're doing here i see what you're trying to do all for it um just do what you can to keep my kids safe okay hey we go about it we do it and then if something goes sideways you can go back to the parents and be like hey we really tried to guard against this happening here's what happened let me tell you everything that goes that's a lot harder if you just do it and your your parents find out this exists later on when something goes goes bad. So I, it might be a bit of a ramble, but I all of this is to say you have to as a youth minister, I think you have to be very careful, guard yourself, recognize that you could do everything right and it could still go wrong and have constant communication with parents about these things at all times so that they're not caught by surprise if something does go wrong, that, that this forum, and I don't mean literal internet forum, but this space, whatever it is you've yep. created online exists. They should, they should not be surprised that this thing exists. They should be concerned if whatever maybe goes wrong, goes wrong. And you, like, I'm not saying it's going to, but you have to be prepared for that. Yeah. Well, thinking, yeah. Thinking about the different spaces that you create, are you going to go to a carnival with your youth group? Maybe. Are you going to go to the red light district with your youth group? No, like that you, if you are going to avail them to certain spaces where they have access to images and certain things, and even like access to a gift tool on discord gives you access right. to all sorts of images and That's parents right. need to know this. Um, and you need to, you need to be wise about what you're actually giving access to anytime you uh, open up that quote unquote space. It's like when parents say, oh, I'll get my kid a phone. It's like, do you realize what you are giving them access to? Like if you're willing right. to let your kid roam the streets at two in the morning in the biggest city near you at two in the morning, like, are, are you willing to give them that level of access to risk? Then sure, give them sure. a phone. Yeah. Um, but you got to evaluate it through those 
those type, types. Yeah, and of the questions. other thing I'll 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 say to the other side because I've had so many conversations about teens and phones with parents, both yeah. in the student ministry where I serve and as I speak to parents all over. Um, there's a cost to both sides of of like the phone slash social media, because there's the cost of obviously what you just said. You give them a phone, you give them social media, you're putting them, um, you're you're dropping them off in a you know in your city at two a.m. and and see how that goes for you. Yeah, and it can go bad. However, like something that I think a lot of parents who are more protective and, and ha- recognize that don't the a cost that those parents don't count is that their kid is going to be bullied and their kid is going to be left out socially for not having a phone or not having access to Snapchat or Discord or whatever mm-hmm. platform that their friends are on. That will happen. And so um, what I tell parents when they say, when should I let my kid have a phone? Should I let my kid have a phone slash social media? I'm like, well, there's not a right answer per se. Like everyone's going to have their own preference here. And I don't think that there's a right answer. You know, let's say he's 16. We're talking about a 12 year old. I think there is more of a right answer, but if we're talking like, you know, 16, 17 year old, whatever. Um, I just, how I frame it is which set of problems would you rather deal with? Mm-hmm. Would you rather deal with the kid who's exposed to something you shouldn't be? And then you got to work through that and all of that. And, and to some degree, some may say, I'd rather have them exposed to that while they're under my roof than when they're not. I understand that philosophy. Um, or, that's the that's the price you pay for that you likely pay for giving your kid a phone slash social media, or do you want to pay the price of your kid feeling ostracized, being made fun of, being left out of um, group texts and inside jokes, and not knowing what's going on at the lunch table at school, um, and come home upset and maybe crying? You know, your fifteen year old boy is crying because he's feels like he has no friends because everybody has a phone and they make fun of him because he doesn't know what they're talking about. I've heard that story more than more times than I can count on one hand. Um, and so that's a real, that's a cost. And, and mm-hmm. I think as a parent, you have to figure out, do I want to deal with that or do like, which one do I want to deal with? And I don't like, I can't fault parents who maybe give their 15 year old boy a phone because they don't want him. They, they're like, I'd rather deal with when he comes in across something that he shouldn't than him feeling socially ostracized like that because I was socially ostracized in a lot of ways. So like, I, I feel that as a, as a, you know, thinking back to my teenage high school brain, like I, I know how hard that can be. And so, um, so I don't fault parents who want to do that and who maybe trust their kids, you know, as, as best as they can, even though they are just teenagers. And so, so anyway, I just always want to say like, I don't, I, I try not to shame people for whichever way they go. I just want them to know that the cost and the risk that they're choosing with, with whichever decision they make. Hmm. Well said. Well, we only have a little bit of time left. Um, I'm kind of curious to talk about podcasts with you for a little bit because you referenced in a post way uh, sometime last year. I I couldn't find where you wrote it down, but that you're interested in reflecting on podcasts more um, in the future. So, so this is the opportunity, and there's a couple of different questions and ways to approach it. One is as an author, it just seems wild to me that you have to go through, it's like a book tour. You got to go through on every podcast. Even I felt bad. I was like, okay, don't worry, Chris, I'm going to write a book review. I'm going to promote it. Like, I'm going to try to help you. We're not a big podcast, but like, at least there's some people listening and we're going to try to support Like there's a weird sort of exchange um, that happens and, and there's just time and it's free content. Like you, we didn't pay you for this, but it's, it's seen as an exchange of promotion. There's that. And then there's also a, a line of 
conversation that's related to to friendship and that podcast to some people they almost replace friendships because there's banter there's a there's a lightness to it they can put it in and feel like they're talking with someone as they commute and in some ways it almost feels like podcasts replace friendships i'm not going to go that far but there's something there there's something to um you know i think i saw something that said you know 25 years ago it was two and a half hours per day that teenagers were hanging out with each other. Now it's like 40 minutes a day. Like there's just less hanging out time, less friendship time. And so we replace it with online. We talked about that earlier and po- podcasts are a culprit. So how do you think about podcasts? The, the, the good and the bad. I, um, so first I'll speak to the author bit and then I'll speak about just my general view of podcasts. So, um, I love going on podcasts as an author. I say yes to every podcast. I will go, I will go on a podcast if you can't even prove to me you have listeners. Um, because I've had a podcast before and know what it's like to have a podcast that very few people listen to. Um, and I uh, am an author that is a nobody and doesn't sell a ton of books, at least historically. Maybe that maybe that'll change with this one. Um, so I need all the help I can get. So I what what happens, and I'm a pretty hard worker, I push myself a lot. So like when when time comes a year from now and this book's been out for a year and if if sales are where i want them to be or even less i want to be able to say i left nothing on the ca- on the table i did everything in my power to make this succeed i hmm. i wrote for every outlet that i could i went on everything that i possibly could i want to leave nothing on the table um and i hope that would be true even if i became me- mega successful i i never if i'm ever blessed slash cursed with the opportunity to be more well known than i am um, yeah. I would hope that I'm never a big timer because I've been with those people and they're not fun people. Um, so I, as an author, I love going on podcasts because this is way more fun than like tweeting, please buy my book or whatever. And so if, if you know, if this is book promotion, I'd rather spend an hour talking about the content of the book. And this has been, frankly, not, I'm not gassing you up. I don't gas people up. This has been the most robust conversation I've had yet on the book. No, and no offense to the other people I've talked to. Um, but like, I'd rather go on for an hour and talk about the book, then spend 30 seconds writing a tweet. Like I would right. rather do that. Um, so I, I love it. And I um, am never offended to go on podcasts. And I, like I said, I'll go on any podcast of any size or radio show or whatever else. Um, general view of podcasts. I used to listen to like five or six podcasts a week from like 2013 to 2016. Uh, during the 2016 election season and here in the US, every podcast I listened to immediately became about the election. Basically, like whatever the topics were, they just wove their topics into the election somehow. Mm-hmm. And I hated it because I hated the 2016 election. So I was just sick of hearing about the election all the time. Um, and so I just kind of stopped and I got an Audible membership and I replaced all of my listening time with uh, with audiobooks rather than podcasts. Totally. I have not subscribed to a podcast six to- since 2016. I will listen to episodes um, and more often I actually like if they have a YouTube component, I'll pull up the YouTube video while I'm like working on my other screen or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's more common. And also I don't have a commute anymore. So that's the other thing is I used to have anywhere from a 30 minute commute each way at one point to like an hour and 15 commute commute each way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I used to spend two and a half hours in the car. And so I had a lot more auditory time. Um, these days I don't have a lot of time where I would be listening to something. 
I mean, unless like sometimes while I'm working, certain work doesn't require, you know, a ton yeah, of thought. Yeah. It's kind of rote. But even then, I'm probably have a YouTube video up or, or a Twitch stream or something like that. Um, so I'm not commuting much anymore. Uh, and I love listening to music. So like there's also that I like listening to music while I'm working. And so I don't listen to podcasts anymore regularly. I Like I said, I'll pop into episodes here and there. Um but I, I'm not subscribed to any. I don't even know if I have any apps downloaded on my phone because if I'm listening to them, it's more likely that I'm listening to them on my computer. So, And I, I actually don't even have my Audible subscription anymore because I don't commute. So I still have like six books that I bought with the credits that I had from 2020 um, when I stopped commuting and and don't have much commute time anymore. But yeah, um, but yeah so I, I went from podcast to audiobooks in 2016 and haven't really gone back, though I occasionally will. I was just listening to one earlier this morning. I'll occasionally pop into an episode here and there. But I think they're great. I love podcasts. I think they're still on the rise. I don't think people are getting sick of them. I mean, maybe they are, but like I think that they show tremendous potential. I have like five podcast ideas that I would love to do, but don't have time to do. Um, and so I would love to do one again. I did one for a couple of years and it, it was fun. It was just a few of us. For, it was basically a group text message that we decided to make a zoom call and let people listen to if they wanted to. Um, yep. And uh, it was a blast, but I had a kid and things got busy and we just kind of stopped. So, um, but yeah, anyway, that's my general view. No, no, that's cool. I've sometimes said that po- good podcasts are gateways to good books. Yeah. Um, that, that there is kind of like a, a hierarchy. Like my wife has never listened to our podcast. Um, like she loves me, but she, sure. she will read what I write, but she's into books, not into yeah. banter. Um, sure. So anyways, thanks so much for your time, Joel. Do you, do you, did you, I didn't leave you time to ask any of your future metaverse <laughs> no, questions. No, no, no. I'm sorry. We could have a whole other discussion on that sometime if you wanted. Yeah. Sometime I mean, actually, in the future. I'm, that'd be fun. I am actually quite interested because I know you, Christy said you don't have plans for a third book, but I actually really enjoyed this book because of how, um, thorough it was at looking at some of the nuances of social media. And yeah. I think, you know, kind of my heart is for like the technologist building the platform, right? Mobile yeah. disrupted internet. There is a new platform. Mobile is not the last platform. Right. And, you know, like sure, generative AI is a tech buzz right now, but AI isn't a platform. Right. And I do think there will be some value in unpacking that later. Like, you know, what yeah. is that next platform and how can Christians kind of be more ahead and like anticipate the influences that we'll have because you know like snapchat instagram facebook they all have different nuances to them so this next platform will also um, yeah but that'll be happening another time yeah i would love i would love to have that conversation and um and i think like i'm not anti-metaverse uh i think that what could happen is we could just perpetuate some of the same problems that I've identified. And I want to make sure that however we step into this, we try to take some active measures to not perpetuate those same problems. And obviously new problems can crop up as well. But um, I I think it's inevitable. And I think we need to start mentally preparing for that. Um, We just need to, uh, I want want us to have a little bit more caution than we did going into this phase. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like there's an impetus to have a little bit more foresight you know, than right. what happened to us this time. Yep. Well, thanks, Chris, for joining. Really appreciate your time. So yeah, you can get Chris's book, The Wolf in Their Pockets, wherever books are sold. Uh, you can also subscribe to his free newsletter, Terms of Service. Of course, we always link to these things in the description, in the show notes. And so you can do that. Thank you all for listening. 
Genuinely, I know it might seem like a minor thing to you to listen to a podcast like this, but just a, a listen, a download um, is an encouragement to us, as is a rating. Um, some of you have been doing that and rating our podcast. Thanks for doing that. And thank you to our Patreon supporters as well, who are supporting us financially. If you want to join that group and support Joel and I in creating more content like this, uh, please do so by uh, going to our website, whatwouldjesustech.com. And yeah, we're encouraging everyone to not be centered on themselves. Social media is often centered on ourselves and all about our own profile. We want to be centered on Christ. So we encourage you to do so, to use tech to find rest and to glorify God. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.